Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff. My name is Steve Norman, and it's my joy today to welcome my friend and colleague, Sarah Young. Sarah is a sexual therapy specialist. She's also a marriage therapist at Hope Restored, a marriage intensive experience for couples in crisis. Hey, Steve. She, well, hello, Sarah. It's great to see you. I was to also going to let everybody know that you have an amazing husband, Lance. You guys oh, have been married for? For 18 years. I'm a and fan. And you have? We have three teenagers. So we're so surviving your, that. Your life is full. Yes, like so many of our listeners, for sure. Sarah, tell me a little bit about just your faith backstory. How did you come from kind of your childhood to the point where kind of Christ is part and parcel of your essence? Yeah, so I grew up in a home where both my parents love the Lord, come from a long legacy of believers, which is really great. Um, my faith really became my own in college when I had the opportunity to study out in Colorado at a at a summer program and uh, really had uh, an amazing experience when there was a gentleman who said to me one day, because I am six foot five, for those of you um, who don't know that, um, but he said to me, you know, your height is such a part of your glory. And Mm -hmm. there was something in me that unlocked with God's on-purposeness in creation. It wasn't just this genetic deformity. It was an on-purposeness piece of God that I loved. And suddenly I had this different trust for his heart. And my faith really livened up to become my own. And all those things that I had had invested in me, um, they just took on a different meaning and a different um, absorption into the core of my identity as a woman and as as a lover of God and all of those things. So it's been a lifelong journey, Steve. It's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Talk to me about how you made a pivot for, like from college to when you decided to go into clinical work. Yes. Talk about that discernment. Absolutely. So after college, I was a resident director at a school then in Indiana, and I loved the one-on-one context with the students, particularly the women. Um, and I was, I thought I could keep doing this counseling thing. This is great. And decided then that I wanted to pursue graduate school. The sexual passion piece came later on when I started to read premarital books. And there was one called The Celebration of Sex for Newlyweds. And the first three chapters weren't anything like I thought. I was thinking technique, skill, all that sort of thing. And the first three chapters were all on the biblical metaphor and God's heart on it. And I thought, I'm not hearing this anywhere in premarital therapy. I'm not hearing this in church. And something came alive in me reading that and that God's heart for sex is so good and redemptive and passionate and that it was created before the fall and all these things that were very different than the, well, just don't do it till you're married message that I had heard uh, oftentimes, you know, grown up in church and there just wasn't more substance to it. So this really threaded God's heart through my perspective on sex, and I I loved the thought of being a healthy voice representing his heart in the clinical context for couples to be able to process this really sacred realm in a safe way, in a way that, uh, man, just, just gave more substance to it, more texture, more freedom, more invitation to, to struggle um, in, in ways that the world doesn't offer. So that's kind of how I got there. Sarah, you talk about just a backstory that that book gave you that you didn't have like maybe a language or a framework for before. Right. It seems like in many ways in 
kind of the evangelical subculture or the church environments that maybe you and I grew up in, we heard a lot of negative framing, mm-hmm. like God's heart for sex is not. Right. But it didn't start with like a positive framing, which is God's heart for sex is for. Or maybe 90% of the energy was like not, 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 don't, don't, don't. Yeah. And then there was a little footnote like, oh, P.S. Right. Like there, there is a positive element to this yeah. and it looks like this. Talk about the parts that you feel a lot of people may have missed. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, so, you know, you echo the same sort of scenarios I grew up with where some of my parents didn't speak life into that sexual narrative. It's just that they're from a generation that's much more private. And so uh, kind of left on our own to navigate a bit. And, you know, the the world has plenty of sexual messages they want to throw at us. Um, So many that are distorted by the enemy and uh, just really shallow and reductionistic with sex. Um, But I think so many of the things that people miss have to do with that very reality that sex was created before the fall by a creator who's not embarrassed with this fantastic gift he has given married couples to enjoy in the bedroom. And uh, man, for that to be uh, just a really invigorating, exciting um, gift from him that on this side of heaven, we are going to bump into struggles. And uh, we're not prepared for that, that the sex life is going to be challenging. I think a lot of us grow up in the church, for those of us that walk around in the, the the pathway of wait until marriage, oftentimes I think there is a false expectation of of what will come as a reward, if you will, from from that posture of don't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not until I do. And then there's this expectation that it's going to be this light switch, and suddenly everything is going to come on and be easy. And so there's that avenue of of what people miss. I think oftentimes we grow up in Christian circles too, with just a lack of knowledge because there isn't a comfort in talking about it. There is the almost the deer in the headlights with how to talk about the bodies, with how to talk about the genitals, with the beauty of how God created our bodies to respond and and connect. And um, so often we just shy away from that and, and miss a lot of that just baseline knowledge. So you talk a little bit about how the, some people were really well-intentioned to be mm-hmm. able to say like, hey, watch out for this and watch out for this and watch out for this. And some, without maybe saying it out loud or consciously, what, there was this kind of quid pro quo that was baked into some of the purity movement language sure. that was like, if you do all, if you color inside the lines, mm-hmm. then everything will be magical and perfect when you get married. Mm-hmm. And you're saying things are hard anyway. Right. And then to maybe have an inadvertent layer of shame wrapped over what would have been a challenge just because we're humans right. compounded it a little. Oh. Am I hearing you right? You are. Yep. Absolutely. I acted with couples that just didn't know how to grieve because the disappointment of this is not what we thought it would be um, and how they waited and how they felt like this is owed to us because of how we walked the road that the church presented. Um, yeah, but there, there's that reality of no two bodies are alike, no two men are alike, no two women are alike. And so here we are trying to, to connect in this realm, in this language. And there are challenges just because our bodies change. There are different seasons of life. Communication issues are, are a thing. And so to end up in that spot and then feel that shame penetrating with there must be something so deeply wrong with me because... 
I thought I've done everything right, or I wasn't supposed to struggle. And there's just a lot of myth around that. And I'm excited. We're going to, you and I are going to talk in another episode about some of those myths. But the shame is a huge piece of what gets people stuck and really hesitant to come forward and ask for, for help or even companionship on that journey. Sarah, you've told me before, and we'll get into greater depth on this in a later episode, that a lot of the issues that have to do with intimacy aren't intimacy-specific issues. Like, that's the symptom, but it's not the root cause. So true. And we have to, like, drill down a couple layers to get there. So true. And I love that you have named that some some of the disappointment that a lot of Christian couples feel around sex has very little to do with sex and has a lot to do with our theology of obedience. Oh, I think you're right. And Mm -hmm. I think that for some of us, it's like, well, wait a second. Like I got my perfect Sunday school award and Mm -hmm. I was able to maintain chastity or virginity or whatever, however else you want to slice it. And because I have racked up all of these merit points, God owes me trophies and prizes. Yes. And the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that. Anywhere. Mm Mm-mm. And I believe that it's just so important for us to be able to, in our own lives and especially in our lives of our, with our children, to be able to say a life of surrender and acts of obedience mm-hmm. and moments of faithfulness are their own reward. Yeah. They're not a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And so for me to be able to say like, oh, I trust God with my purity or I want to worship God with my mind or I worship God with my body. It's because I love him and trust him and believe mm-hmm. that God has my best interests in mind. Not I have some other I have some other ulterior motive right. and I'm leveraging God mm. to get something that I want. I don't think he I don't think he plays that way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that. If we've grown up in performance-based or earning-based or merit-based systems that we kind of um, copy and paste onto God, Mm. it sets the stage for frustration, disappointment, and maybe in worst cases, disillusionment. Absolutely. Like, how do I believe in a God who held out on me? Or how how can I trust a God who has withheld something that I believe that I was owed Mm -hmm. or due? Absolutely. And, you know, this comes into a conflict attention for a lot of a lot of young people when they're in their 20s and their brain is finally fully developed and they wrestle differently when they do as adolescents and um, so suddenly there's a, there's these other layers of thinking that are opened up and there's the grieving of this is not what I thought and there's a lot of um, faith crisis that goes along with that, especially with our culture, uh, that just complicates let, the theology of sexuality, let alone that theology of obedience. Do you ever run into couples who say, wow, I, I thought that I did what I was expected and this is hard and now I'm second guessing a lot of the choices that I made along the way? Absolutely. I have. Yeah. Like, because it seems like there are some couples who are like, well, I I have friends who maybe aren't people of faith and made different sexual choices and their sexual life seems to be going up and to the right. And Mm -hmm. mine is is stuck in a ditch somewhere. Yeah. Was there any value? Yeah. It feels really unfair. It feels really unfair. What do you tell not even just young men and women? What do you tell men and women of any life or marriage stage who Mm. are feeling like God has let them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is this is probably, um, you know, a, a reality of disappointment that doesn't just show up in their sex lives. Um, okay. You know, it might feel like the loudest place it shows up. 
uh, the most personal place it shows up. Um, but yeah, there's there's a 40,000 foot view of that. And then there's the 4,000 foot view where up close, man, this looks like it has everything to do with sex and all the places I've been held out on. And it's just like Eve in the garden when you know, the enemy says to her, did God really say, you know, Mm. he whispers the same way today with, did God really say, and see, uh, look where you landed. You thought God said, and look where you landed. So man, his lies, his attempts to steal and kill and destroy, he he takes on a different narrative based so heavily on what specifically we're struggling with. When I'm walking with couples or individuals that are wrestling there, um, you know, talking about the reality of God's heart and the reality of their sex lives. They're they're interwoven, but there has to be that trust of God's heart before they can have any sort of movement in their sex life. It has to go in, in that sequencing if there's a significant disappointment with God in the midst of that. Well, that's super helpful, Sarah. And I think that I would just love to hear you talk about what do you do with couples who feel stuck and then you say like, okay, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Like yeah. rather rather than saying like, oh, let's talk about your beginning. Let's say like, oh, we're, we are, our frame for this is wrong. Right. Let's go back to where God's frame for sex fits. Because yes. I think that sometimes some of the dominant themes that we hear in our era elevate sex to a place that... I don't want to say higher, Mm -hmm. but is different than we're like for, because it seems like for, for God, sex fits into a grid Mm -hmm. as opposed to being outside and above or other than it's not its own category. It's integrated into the whole of life. So how and where do we miss that? So backing up to the first part of your question, I think that to start with God's heart on it, some of those basics in the garden of Eden, having his wedding for Adam and Eve sexual intimacy being a, a wedding gift. And, you know, there, there's a lot of meta narrative there, but that a lot of times we don't want to pay attention to because it's, oh, it's poetic and it's beautiful, but I, I just want to fix my sex life. Mm. Um, but it speaks so much to God's heart on it. I think realizing that God is wanting to be redemptive. So much of us take a posture of sexual atheism when it comes to God's heart on our sex life or even questions of my sexual identity or gender identity, all the things. That's a, that's a cultural theme, right? But inviting God into those intimate spaces of sexual connection is just as important as inviting him into the places I have doubt, the places I have hope, the places that, the other places I'm journeying with him. So um, one of the things that I tell couples um, when they are kind of reframing, rebooting where they're coming from sexually is, man, sit on the end of your bed and just invite the Lord to be in the space with you. And um, that that act of, it's the three of us in this room and you are a part of this. And again, not embarrassed and wanting us to experience connection and pleasure in the way it was designed to be experienced. So when couples miss that, um, they're, they're missing a, a huge helpful backdrop on, on journeying together. The second piece that I, I work with couples on is, is definitely connected to that truth of what is my identity in Christ because um, we have been slaughtered, right, just bombarded with other messages of where we're not enough, why we're not enough, how we're not enough. So how am I showing up as a man? And is that informed by the truth of God's word? Is that informed by cultural messages? How am I showing up as a woman? What's true about my beauty? What's true about 
how God designed me to be intoxicating to, to my spouse, and then what's true about sex itself, God's hard on that for it to be connecting and rich and satisfying and deep and, and good and, and in so many realms, right? There's, there, there's fun, playful sex that invests in our, our friendship. There's deep, sensual connection that's healing and soothing for the soul. And then there's, there's just so many realms where um, when we show up as our best selves, walking in our integrity versus our wounded selves, trying to scrape by and show up and then it's over. It's just not big enough for what God intended. So good. Sarah, you mentioned sexual atheism. Unpack that term a little bit for those of us who are new to that language. Right. So I can't claim that is mine. I heard that once, but I don't know who said it. Okay. Uh, but sexual atheism, atheism being, um, I don't believe God has presence or voice or reality uh, in, in this realm. Um, so sexual atheism, I don't think God has um, a, a say-so or any kind of influence on my sex life or my sexual beliefs or my sexual behavior. Um, so I, I can be a, a Christ follower but have pieces of my life blocked off from God. And this is definitely one where uh, a lot of people wrestle with, you know, God, I don't want to live within the parameters that you have given for this. I don't want to wrestle with why I use sex or pornography in this way. I don't want to deal with the reality of sexual sin. And I think that sexual atheism here is big because sexual sin isn't larger. It just has different consequences. And I'm, you know, scripture talks about I'm, I'm going against my own body, sinning against my own body when I'm not walking this in the way that God designed it to be lived into. Sexual atheism will keep me disconnected and stuck and relying on my own common sense and sometimes my own lust. And it, it, again, it's too small. God's inviting us to something bigger. And he's, for that to be bigger, he wants to be a part of it. How do some couples arrive at a point of God cares about every dimension of our lives except for maybe this one? I think a lot of it is that shame. It's okay. that shame and the fear because we don't know how to do anything differently. So maybe some of us are struggling unconsciously with shame and we're not even aware of it. Where have you seen just maybe tentacles of shame surface in the work that you're doing with couples so that other couples who are listening yeah. might be able to say like, oh yeah, that's us too. Maybe shame is lurking underneath the waterline and sure. we just weren't aware that it was there. Yep, absolutely. Big difference that sometimes people miss between guilt and shame is guilt being there's something wrong with what I'm doing or what I did. Shame being there's something so deeply wrong with who I am. Um, so that, that shame, that sense of defectiveness, um, you know, however that shows up in my masculinity, not only um, in the bedroom, maybe in if and how I'm able to please my wife or if I'm able to connect with her emotionally, relationally, if I feel partnership with her. For women, um, do I feel worth pursuing? Do I feel like my beauty matters? And um, if it doesn't, it, it, there must be something so deeply wrong with me. Um, so it can it can show up for men and, and women very differently. And uh, man, when I uh, look to my spouse to try to uh, fix that sense of shame, I'm always going to be disappointed. He can't possibly, he can't, Lance can't possibly convince me that I'm enough. He wasn't designed to. Um, so shame can be uh, a familiar companion, a familiar villain in the bedroom when, when I don't tend to it in a way that's, that's helpful. 
and you may be intending to get into this in other conversations. What recommendations, what tools do you have for couples to be able to say, okay, this is how we can reset the shame meter individually and collectively? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think some of it starts with honest conversation between spouses. Some of it starts with honest conversation with God in prayer. Some of it starts with an honest assessment of who I am and who I'm not. And there are a lot of resources out there that talk about, you know, the truth of who I am in, in, in Christ, the truth of who I am as a man. I love Eldridge stuff, the wild at heart, the captivating. Those really speak to that sense of beauty and that sense of strength as men and women. So a lot of it is uh, just dissecting what's true and what's, what's not. Um, but that can feel like a really big undertaking because so many things feel true even when they're not. Yeah. So what else do people need to hear about just God's design and heart for sex that they would miss if they weren't listening for it? You know, I think uh, he has designed this in a way that he's longing for us to be able to show up naked and unashamed. And for the places where we hide, you know, you think about back to the Garden of Eden when he goes looking for Adam and Eve after they've eaten the fruit. And his first question to them is, where are you? Uh, he's God, right? That's not a navigational question. Sure. But the where are you, I think, is more for Adam and Eve, than it, obviously, than it is for him. Do you know where you are? And so I think that that is a great question to start with. Where am I? And God asking, hey, where are you? Because I want to partner with you in the discovery of where you are and for where you're wounded. I'm longing to bring healing. Where you feel disconnected, I want to integrate you, connect you. And ultimately, sexually intimate relationship with my spouse is meant to be just a glimmer of what my relationship is with God. This rise up, come into me, be one. Um, There's just beautiful picture in there that I get to experience that when I'm intimate with my husband. That's a really great thing. Sarah, when it comes to couples who are struggling in their journey with sexuality, to hear that question like, where are you? Yeah. In this dimension of your relationship in your marriage. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of couples have never stopped to ask or answer the question just because either A, it draws them back to shame, B, they're afraid of the answer, C, there's this the crush and press of life. There's Mm -hmm. bills to pay, there's household tasks to get done, there's kids to manage. Yes. What do you say to couples who are like, Sarah, I wouldn't even know how to begin to answer that question? Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't mean diving into the middle of the question. It means just coming to the edge of it. Where am I at with myself physically? What's going on for me around my body? Where am I at emotionally? Am I feeling connected to my spouse? Where am I at mentally with my beliefs about sex, my beliefs about us, all those things? Where am I at spiritually? So it's just a curiosity question. And if couples can trade out self-judgment or spouse judgment for curiosity, That'll give them an openness and a little bit more of a landscape to move in and start to be um, discovering maybe some new things about their heads, hearts, and bodies. So I heard you giving a talk once where you just said coming to the edge of that conversation starts with individual curiosity. Yes. So before having a talk together, it can start with just having a talk with yourself. I think so. <laughs> and it sounds like some of these questions that you're mentioning are ones that kind of can start with a with a solo inventory. Absolutely. So that I can kind of place myself on the map <laughs> yeah. before I invite my spouse into that conversation. I think well. so. But man, to think about going in alone when it comes to some of these places where I might bump into shame, I think this is where, you know, Jesus is so eager to come in and journey with us because to go to some of those painful places those shameful places that can be really frightening he's a gentleman he waits to be invited but to go to some of those 
more shadowed places of my heart, some of those places that haven't been explored to anchor into some of his his truth about how he sees me, what he has designed me for, that can be that can feel a lot safer. Sarah, thanks so much. You have been listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. This concludes the first part of a four-part conversation that I'm having with Sarah Young, a sexual therapy specialist. Join us next week for part two. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.